0: Well, we are continuing in our series here at Charter Oak called Asking for a Friend. And what we are doing is we've been answering all kinds of questions, your questions about life, about God, about the church. And today, we're exploring a a series of questions that were all related on a very specific topic. And it it was very fascinating seeing how so many people's questions all at the end of the day kind of centered on various topics. And today's topic that we're looking at Is the topic of salvation and what are the questions that you had as to what in the world is salvation and what does this look like for us as followers of Jesus to explore this? But before we even dive into some of the questions about salvation, it might be a good place for all, or a good place to start for all of us to know what even is salvation in the first place. So that's our first question. What is salvation? You might be somebody who's been going to church all your life, and you're like, I I hear that word. I don't have a clue what it means. Or you're someone who's newer to the faith, and you're like, yeah, I hear Christians say that, but I don't actually know what they're talking about when they say salvation. The basic definition of the word salvation means being saved, rescued, or delivered. Okay, It means to be saved, rescued, or delivered from anything. You could be saved from a raging river. You could be rescued from, I don't know, a a meteor hitting the the earth, whatever it is. To have salvation, most basic understanding means to be saved, rescued, or delivered from something or for something. In Christianity, whenever you hear Christians talking about the word salvation, they are talking about when God has saved, rescued, or delivered you. When, When we as a people, when you as a person have been saved or rescued or delivered by God. Now, specifically, we are both saved from something and simultaneously for something. Do you hear that? We're saved both from something and for something. And, and, and we'll explore a lot of this, as I said, in a minute. But we're, for kind of big, sweeping um, idea here. We're saved from sin and death. We're saved for union with Christ and new life. Do you hear that? We're saved from sin and death. We're saved for new life in Christ. Now, we, heard, we read this verse earlier. This is probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. John 3.16. We read that earlier together at the very beginning of the passage. And you'll see this idea of being saved both from something and for something in this very verse. Take a look at it. John 3.16. Say it with me if you want. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John tells us in this verse that God saves us from perishing... And for eternal life, and that's in a nutshell is, the, is what salvation is—to be saved from perishing and to be saved for eternal life. Now let's tackle. Let's now let's dive into some of the questions related to this concept of salvation, and we're going to start with a big one. You guys ready? All right. Here's the big one: What is predestination, and does Charter Oak believe it? Okay. Some of you are probably sitting there thinking. I've never heard this word before. What in the world are we about to talk about? And that's okay. Others of you have probably been wondering this for months and months and months, if not years, and you're longing for an answer. Okay, well, let's, this is a two-part question. So whoever snuck in two questions, good luck, good job. Two-part question, what is predestination and does Charter Oak believe it? Let's take the first part of this question first. What is predestination? Okay, predestination is the belief that God predetermines who is and who isn't saved. Let me say that again. Predestination is the belief that God predetermines ahead of time who is and who isn't saved. So in other words, it's, that, it's the belief that God chooses who will and who won't receive salvation. God chooses who he will save and who he won't save. Now, sometimes people refer to those whom God chooses to save as the elect. You might hear that in some places or even hear other Christians talk about that. Now, logically, what this means is we kind of trace out the the thought process behind this belief. Logically, predestination means that Jesus only died for the people whom God chose to save. He died for a very limited group of people. The people whom he chose to save are the people that he died for and ultimately are the people that he's offering new life. That Logically, that's what this means. Now, Christians who believe in predestination will argue that human beings, you and me, we are so radically sinful that we will never accept God on our own. That our sin is so deep that we will never come to to, to terms with accepting Christ On our own merit or our own ability because of our sin in fact they'll say people can't receive because of that people can't receive salvation unless God gives it to them our sin is so deep that we will not be able to accept salvation unless God gives it to them and they'll say technically no one deserves to be saved frankly the fact that God is saving anybody at all is an act of grace technically no one deserves to be saved based on our sin now, Ephesians 2, 8-9 gets at this idea a little bit, right? For, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This idea that it is only by grace that we are saved. There's no human works involved. Nothing that we do, it is only God who saves us. So, does Charter Oak believe in predestination? No, we do not. Now one of our essential beliefs, that's on our website, is about salvation. And here's what it says in full. You can look this up on our website if you want. Salvation is God's free gift to us, but we must accept it. Do you hear that? We can never overcome our sin nature by self-improvement or good works. Only by trusting in Jesus Christ as God's offer of forgiveness can anyone be saved from sin's penalty. When we return from our self-ruled and sinful life and turn to Jesus in faith, we are saved. Eternal life begins the moment we receive Jesus Christ into our lives by faith. So ultimately, what we believe is we believe that God offers salvation to all people, but people must accept that salvation Salvation is offered to everybody by God as a gift, but in order to accept that gift, you have to choose to receive it. So we believe that God's grace has given people the free will to either accept or reject salvation. Now, for those of you who are theology nerds and you want to go learn more about this later, you're going to want to go home and Google the word Arminianism, okay? That's what this is. Arminianism. Now, if you want to know how to spell that, you'll have to figure it, let Google figure it out for you. But Arminianism is this idea that we're describing here as to what it is that we believe when it comes to salvation. Now, here's a few reasons why we believe this. So first of all, we believe this because Scripture tells us that God desires all people to be saved and doesn't want anybody to perish. Here's two examples in both 2 Peter and 1 Timothy. First, Uh, 2 Peter says, The Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting who to perish? Anyone. God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then Paul says to Timothy, he says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who what? Wants all people. Does it say some people? No, it says all people to be saved. God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And, and remember John 3.16 from earlier? What does God love according to John 3.16? God loves the world, the whole world, right? And anyone who believes will not, will not perish and receive eternal life. And so we see from these verses that part of what we're discovering about the nature of God is that God longs for all people to, to know him and love him and serve him and experience salvation. The salvation that God has offered offers is not limited to just a select group of people that God selects ahead of time. And so, because if you think about it, if God predetermines ahead of time who will and who won't be saved then the fact that God seems to offer salvation to all people and want all people to be saved, well, it would make it seem like God is insincere on what he's actually offering to people. Now, another reason why we believe, believe that, God's, um, that we believe in Arminianism, is, is the term, is because we believe in something that is known as, well, I'll say this for you theology nerds, here's another one. It's called provenient grace, okay? And I'll, I'm going to describe it here for you a second. So the, the concept of prevenient grace is this, that God's grace is so powerful, so all-consuming, so amazing, amazing grace, that God's grace goes before us and frees us to believe. You remember what I said earlier about how many people will say the reason why we can't accept salvation is because we're so sinful, we'll never accept God on our own merit or on our own? Well, technically, we believe that too. But what we believe is that God's grace goes before us and by grace frees us so that we can make a decision to choose. We know that we will not choose God. The only reason we can choose God is because God's grace has freed us in order to be able to choose God. So we believe God's grace frees our will. And so think of it this way. Sometimes people will want to know, like, oh, do you believe in free will, right? They'll ask that question. Do you believe in free will or not? And I would say it this way. Instead of saying that we have free will, say this instead. We have a freed will. You hear that? Hear that distinction? It's not that we have a free will. It's that we have a freed will. Our will has been freed by God's grace, enabling us to actually make a choice in the first place. God's grace frees us to choose him or reject him. I love how it says this in in Titus. Paul says to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So in a nutshell, Charter Oak Church does not believe in predestination. We believe God desires all people to be saved, that Jesus died for the whole world, not just the people going to heaven, and that God's grace frees our wills, which then gives us the ability to choose or to reject God. John 3.36 wraps this up well. It says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Okay. Now this leads us to another question that was asked. The next question was this: Is there something I can do to lose my salvation? Right? Now, now think of this. Logically, we can we can see why this is an important question. If I accept salvation, right? If God has freed my will to be able to choose to accept him, does that mean that there is something also then that I can do to lose that salvation later on in my life? Now, technically, the answer to this question is yes and no, okay? If what you are thinking of whenever you hear the phrase, lose my salvation, if what you are thinking of is as if, you know, you know, somebody loses their passport when they're on a trip out of the country. I don't know, any of that happened to you, right? And you're just like suddenly like, oh my gosh, I, I, I'm I, stuck. I have nowhere to go. If you think that losing your salvation is like that, then no, that's not what it means. It's, It's not as if there is this one big sin out there that if you accidentally commit it, you know, like, oh my God, oops, I accidentally stepped over this line, that God just yanks your salvation away from you and there's nothing you can do about it, okay? So in that sense, no. That's, you can't lose your salvation in that sense, but you can choose to forfeit your salvation. So we believe you don't just lose your salvation as if, oh, oh, it's gone, somebody took it away from me, but you yourself can choose to forfeit it. Now, salvation includes being in relationship with God. I said at the very, very beginning, part of what it means to be saved is to be saved for union with Christ, to be be saved for a relationship with God. If, you have, if salvation includes having a relationship with God, what does it look like to forfeit that relationship? Well, it looks very similar to forfeiting any relationship that we might have. It's like walking out or abandoning any relationship that you might have. You know, we can think of people that have forfeited their marriages or forfeited their friendships or forfeited all kinds of different relationships. If there is a person who genuinely believes in Christ, but then later in life they choose to walk away from God entirely, walk away from God, fully rejecting him, they are forfeiting this relationship, they can walk away from this salvation that God is offering. Now, God still loves them. Even though that person's walking away from that relationship does not change how God feels, God is still radically in love with all, each and every one of us. Now, it's true that usually when somebody walks away from God, they're forfeiting that relationship, usually this happens gradually. More often than not, it's, this, it's someone who kind of is this little by little choosing, you know, I'm just going to get farther and farther away, farther and farther away. And, and then one day they turn around and it's not there anymore. And yes, many of you are probably thinking this, and this is true too. There are tons of situations, if not the majority of these situations, where it's worth asking the question, was that person even saved to begin with? Was that person ever even saved to begin with? Because if they were truly in this relationship with God, why would they ever wanna walk away from that, right? It is 100% possible that there's plenty of people that it appears that they are in a relationship with God, but they're really not. And so walking away from him isn't really walking away. It's just choosing to live into the reality because their, their, their salvation has just been a farce. It's just been a, you know, something that they've, been put forward, that they've put forward. Now, all that being said, this is super important, and I mentioned it a minute ago. Even though it's possible, For human beings to walk away from God, God will never walk away from us. Never. And some of us, we we need that reminder that we serve a God who is never going to walk out on us, never going to abandon us, who is never going to say, I'm done with you, I'm tired of you, you have failed too much, You you are too far gone. God will never walk away from us. I love how Paul says this in Romans 8. He says, "I am convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord." You know what that means? That means that you can't separate yourself from Christ's love. You're a part of creation. And you trying to walk away from the love of God doesn't mean that God stops loving you. It just means that you're walking away from the love of God, but he continues to love you like crazy. God will never stop loving you and will never walk out on you and will never abandon you. Nothing in all of creation can stop that. You can't stop God's love, even though you might want to try. But rather, and those of you who grew up in the church and you know that story, you know, some of you know the story of where, that Jesus tells about the prodigal son, It's kind of like that. The prodigal son is given the freedom, a freed will, to be able to walk away from his father and to go and live and forfeit this relationship that he has, but God never stops loving him. Now, a very connected question to this, and this is a heavy one, that somebody else asked is this Will people who commit suicide go to heaven? Now, I, I want to be super clear. There are some Christian traditions that teach that if somebody commits suicide, they're automatically going to hell. There are some Christian traditions that teach that. We send a person to hell. There's only one thing that does. Rejecting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And therefore, if there is a person who had accepted Christ and loved them and was doing everything that they could to honor and love and serve Jesus, if that person were to commit suicide later on in their life, that does not mean that they are automatically in hell. Now, as I say that, let me strongly voice this, okay? Suicide is never the right option, friends. Ever. Never. If you or someone you know is struggling with this, if you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts of any sense, of any way, I implore you, I urge you, seek out help. Seek out professional help from the mental health society, from from get social support immediately, talk about it, speak up, come talk to us, open up with your small group, make sure that you people know that this is something you're struggling with. As a church community, we will never judge you or think less of you if this is something that you're struggling with or dealing with. And for the rest of us, for those of us who may not be struggling with this personally, we ought to never shy away from helping a fellow brother or sister in Christ who is struggling with this. We ought to never walk away from those, from those who might be struggling with mental illness of any kind. And so I, you know, I challenge each and every one of us right now, for the people that we know in our lives that are struggling with this, do not walk away from them. As a church, we do not believe that suicide automatically sends somebody to hell. Okay. You might remember that earlier in the sermon I had mentioned that salvation includes two things. Do you remember what those two things were? It means to be saved from something and to be saved for something. Okay, We're saved for eternal life with God. We're saved from perishing or condemnation. And this leads us to our next question. Why does hell exist? Wouldn't it be the most loving for everyone to go to heaven, even if it meant God had to force them there? Man, you guys just keep coming up with these heavy questions, don't you? And then on top of that, you try to sneak in all these two-part questions as well. Another two-part question, another heavy one. Okay, you ready? Let's take, the second, uh, let's take the second part first, okay? That second question. Would it be more loving for God to just force people to go to heaven? Frankly, here's the answer. No. It would not be more loving for God to force people to go to heaven. Why? Because love never, is never forceful or never coercive. Right? Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, Love does not insist on its own way. You know, we we see in in culture all the time, when you look around our wider society, there's tons of examples where people force you to do something and they call it love. It's not love, it's usually abuse, right? God is never going to force us into anything. Love does not insist on its own way. God makes one of the craziest sacrifices of all time by choosing to not get his way, by not forcing people to be with him forever if they don't want to be there. Love always includes risk always. And God is risking that there will be people who don't want to spend eternity with him. And frankly, if God really did force people to go to heaven, well then free will doesn't exist, does it? And we're back to where we started. Now the other part of the, to this question, why does hell exist? Again, thank you guys for these wonderful hard questions. The basic definition of hell is this, separation from God, okay? That's the most basic fundamental definition of hell it is being separated from God so why is it possible for us to be separated from God that's another way to think of the question okay if hell is separation from God why is it possible why did God make it possible to be fully separated from him now first it's possible because God is love Okay, some of you might be thinking what What's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. That sounds strange, but remember, what did we just talk about? Part of the reason why God is, loving, is love is because he takes a risk to not force us to do things. Therefore, because God is love, he does not force us to choose to be with him. God frees our will to make a decision whether or not we want to choose to follow him or reject him. Therefore, it means that God has made it possible for us to choose to be separated from him if we want to, which technically means... There is a, it is possible for us to choose hell. Second, another reason hell exists is because God is holy. Take a look at what Peter says. Second, uh, Peter writes this in, uh, in his letter. He's actually just quoting a, a verse from Leviticus, believe it or not. But what Peter says is this. He says, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy. Why? Because I am holy. He's, now, who said that? God said that. God is saying, you be holy because I am holy. Now, the holiness of God is not something that gets preached about or talked about enough, in my humble opinion. But but many times what ends up happening is Christians will talk so much or emphasize so much on the love of God that they end up excluding the holiness of God. And when that happens... What, what, we, what we see is that then if we only focus on God's love, but we then exclude God's holiness, then concepts such as hell or se- being separated from God seem to be ridiculous to us, right? Because, oh, why would God, if God is love, then he shouldn't, let the, he shouldn't have even created us in the first place, you know, and on and on and on. But many times that's because we're totally forgetting that God is also a God of holiness. God is holy. To say God is holy means that God is so pure and refuses to turn a blind eye to sin. He is not the kind of God that's going to see that there is sin running rampant in the world and just be like, yeah, you know what, it's fine. I'll just, they'll just let them keep figuring it out on their own. No, 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 no. It means that we serve a God who will choose to execute true justice. That one day evil will be dealt with. That sin cannot and will not exist in his presence. If God wasn't holy, then that would mean that God doesn't really care about getting rid of sin or evil from our lives. You know, I've, I've talked with, uh, I, I have some friends, they live in Pittsburgh, but before they moved to Pittsburgh, they, they spent a number of years living in, Ru- in Rwanda. And I remember asking them personally, you know, what was one of the things that you took away after you spent those years living in, in Rwanda? It was right after um, the, 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 the genocide. had kind of been, uh, they're, they're, I mean, they're still sort of dealing with the, the after effects of all of this. But one of the things they said is they said, you know, after being amongst people who had suffered so much evil and corruption and oppression, I will never be able to not serve a God thinking about, I will never be able to serve God without thinking about that He is the God who will one day over, overpower and condemn all sin and evil from this world. Right? Many of those of us who live comfortable, soft lives, and I include myself in that, we sometimes forget to, to, the, 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 that there is so much brokenness and pain and corruption and evil and sin running rampant in this world. We just don't we don't think about the fact that God has promised to one day be a holy God who will purify this world of all sin and of all evil. I don't want to serve a God, frankly, who says, do whatever you want. I want to serve a God who's, I don't want to serve a God who's soft on sin. I want to serve a God who is so passionate about getting rid of sin and evil from this world that he's gonna do everything in his power to destroy it. You know, think of it this way. if you're struggling to think about what the holiness of God is like, I, I love this image. The holiness of God is sort of like anything on planet Earth trying to approach the Sun. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to go towards the Sun, but I'm willing to bet you'd be consumed if you did. And it's like anything trying to approach the Sun from planet Earth. The closer you get to it, the more you're just going to be radically consumed. The holiness of God is kind of like that. Anything that is of sin, trying to approach the holiness of God is going to be consumed. Sin and evil cannot exist in God's presence. And so hell exists because those who choose to reject God and, do not want, and want to remain in their sin are choosing to be separated from God, which ultimately means that they're choosing to be in hell. Now all of this, very fun, exciting topics, leads us to our final question. Why did Jesus have to die? Now, this is a phenomenal question. Frankly, theologians have been trying to explore and answer this question for the last 2,000 years. So all I'm going to try to do is squeeze 2,000 years worth of Christian theology into the next five minutes. Ready? All right, here we go. First, let's start with just a basic fundamental truth that we discover in the opening pages of the Bible. Evil exists. Sin exists, and evil and sin, they cause havoc in the world that God had originally created as good. Sin ruins things, ruins things, it ruins relationships. Anything in this world that you see ruined is ultimately could be traced back to some form of sin. Sin causes injustice and evil and corruption and oppression sin damages anything that it gets its hands on it breaks this world so that we feel as if we're constantly living in a place where it's not the way it's supposed to be the world is broken and the world is tainted because of sin sin is like a disease that infects everything that it comes in contact with and because sin exists because evil exists it's worth asking the question well who's gonna get rid of it Whose job is it to get rid of this sin and evil that is causing havoc in the world? And the answer to that question is this. It's God's. It's God's job to get rid of sin and evil from this world that he created. So why doesn't God just wipe the world clean of sin and evil, you might be thinking. Since it's God's job to get rid of it, why doesn't God just go ahead and get it all out of here? Well, it's because sin has also corrupted and affected every single one of us. Not only are we humans infected with sin, we are contributors to it. We're the ones going out there causing all of the sin and the evil to just continue to spread and run rampant and ruin relationships and cause injustice and oppression. God longs to get rid of sin and evil from this world. But the reason why God is not getting rid of the sin and evil from this world just like that by snapping his fingers is because if he did that, he'd have to get rid of you and me too. Because you and I are sinful. Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If God were to truly get rid of every trace of evil and sin from this world, he'd have to totally eliminate all humanity. He'd have to totally eliminate all human beings if he were to remove sin. He'd have to get rid of people. And so what we see in the story of, the, of Christianity, the story of the Bible, is we see a story of God seeking to remove the sin from his creation while simultaneously seeking to save human beings. The Bible is a story of God eliminating sin while at the same time saving human beings. Now in the Old Testament... This happened in a way that was it was a very symbolic action and it seems very, very strange to, the, to us today. But in the Old Testament, instead of allowing human beings to die as a result of, of sin, God took an animal and that animal was to be substituted in the, a person's place. And the biblical word for this is the word atonement. You ever heard that word before? Atonement. Old Testament books like Exodus or Leviticus, which are very, very, you know, dense, books, explained in lavish detail how this whole process was supposed to be completed. So for example, Leviticus 5.6, we see these instructions given to the people of Israel. It says, "...as a penalty for the sin they have committed..." they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. Now, furthermore, and I know this also sounds strange to us today, the blood of that animal, whatever that animal that was sacrificed, that animal's blood was then used to purify and wash away all of the sin or evil that had come into its midst, right? To come into contact with. This was because in ancient times, the blood was considered the source of life, right? Think about it. The source of life was, was in blood. And so the author of Hebrews in the New Testament explains this process a little bit more for us. They say in Hebrews 9, the law requires that nearly anything that's to be cleansed must be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Do You see, they're unpacking this whole concept <coughs> excuse me, of how God was seeking to eradicate sin while also saving human beings. There was just one tiny little problem the sacrifices that the Israelites were making eventually just became nothing more than empty gestures. Another way to think of it is this, sin and evil infiltrated even the sacrificial system. Corruption infiltrated even the system of sacrifice that God had set up. The priests become corrupt. Israel is still sinning like crazy. Sin has become so powerful that every aspect of even the the, the most holy of things, the, the temple itself, is just running rampant with sin and evil and corruption. And so what does God choose to do? God chooses to become flesh. And he sends his son Jesus to come and dwell among us people so that ultimately he himself could offer his life as a sacrifice of atonement, so that his blood would be the blood that would purify the sins of the people. And so instead of getting rid of human beings to get rid of sin, God chooses to sacrifice himself. Romans 3.25 says it this way, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And that's why, on a hill far away, there stood an old rugged cross. That's why Jesus died. The reason Jesus died was because that was the way that God was both going to conquer sin and still rescue you and me. By dying in our place, taking the weight of sin upon himself, and he did it to give you and I salvation from sin and for eternal life. As we close, I just want to show you this this scripture from Hebrews 9. Christ has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many. He will appear a second time, but not to bear sin, but to bring salvation salvation to those who are waiting for him Now we've been talking about some heavy things this morning and maybe some of these topics have just sort of exposed in your own heart that maybe you fully aren't as committed to following Jesus with your life as you know you ought to be and maybe today is the day where you realize that you too need to make that decision Your will has been freed by the grace of God, and God loves you and will never walk away from you, but will you choose to walk towards him? Will you choose to walk towards God, submitting and surrendering your life to him because he gave his all so that you might have life? Will you choose to receive Christ as your Lord and as your savior? And maybe you're someone who's committed to following Jesus already, but it's time to recommit. Things have been a little bit off lately, and it's time to fully commit. I want to challenge each and every one of you to put yourself in one of those camps. Where are you? Where do you need to be? Do you need to recommit yourself to Christ? Do you need to fully give yourself to Christ for the first time? If that's you, as we sing this closing song, I wanna invite you to do that. To run to the Father with arms wide open, asking for the grace of Jesus to just pour upon you as you enter into his love. And maybe you need to come forward. If you're someone, if you need to come forward during this closing song and to bow on your knees before the cross of Christ, do so. As we sing this closing song, may we all commit our lives to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that you are a God who walks towards us, not away who loves us and offers yourself for us. Lord, as we wrestle with the various areas in our lives that we know we need to give to you, might we most importantly receive the salvation that you offer to us. May we accept it as a gift so that we might be saved from perishing and for new life. Amen.